Welcome to Intergenerational Politics. Hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, we have weekly conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today. And we also ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, also co-hosts this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I'm the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate trial. And I am also an MSNBC legal analyst. Looking forward to today's episode of Intergenerational Politics. Since Biden's inauguration, politics are definitely more hopeful and less stressful for many Americans, but there are still many challenges facing the new administration because of the mess Trump left, his last-minute appointments, and the aftermath of his inciting insurrection less than three weeks ago in an attempt to undo the results of a free and fair election. That was January 6th, and a week later he was impeached for the second time, and the first president to ever have that ignominious accomplishment. Last week, Nancy Pelosi sent the House impeachment articles to the Senate, and the jurors were sworn. That makes it lucky that we have scheduled today Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio as our guest. We're going to talk about all of those subjects with him today. Senator Brown was first elected to the Senate in 2006 and currently serves on four committees, Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, what was known as banking, housing, and urban affairs, but which you'll hear more about from him today, finance, and veterans affairs. In addition to his committee assignments, Senator Brown has a crucial role right now as a juror in the Senate impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, which is scheduled to start the week of February 8th. I look forward to talking with him about the trial and another important challenge facing the Senate, passing the COVID-19 relief bill. We'll also ask him about what he thinks for Victor's generation about what can be done to improve our government after four years of constant norm and rule breaking. Thank you, Senator Brown, very much for being here today. Good, look forward to it. Thank you. You and all your colleagues have now heard Trump's speech on the mall, his lies about the election fraud for months leading up to that. And of course, you're fully aware of his failure to protect you and all of your colleagues, as well as the vice president of the United States, as his mob invaded the Capitol. Thankfully, you all lived through the domestic terror attack, but five others were not uh, as lucky. Your constituents saw it happen live on television, So what I want to start with is asking you what it was like knowing all of this evidence and that you're now a juror, you're also a direct witness and a victim of the terror attack that you know for sure Donald Trump incited and is now being tried for. So what does that feel like to be a juror in a case where you have firsthand knowledge of the facts? I I guess I not thought of it exactly that way, but you're right. I mean, it's First, first in this responsibility is juror. That comes first. Then the evidence we see, we we see on screen. We see we see the videos. We um, hear the president's words. We listen to the president's phone call. 
uh, to the Secretary of State of, of Georgia. Um, as a juror, I, I will use all of, I will look at all that information. I don't say for sure how I'm gonna vote, but understand that I'm, um, that, that we have to hold this president accountable. And I have been, well, what's, what's broken my heart perhaps the most is watching just still Republican senators, almost not quite unanimously, but in mass continuing to play this down as if it was, were Antifa or it was president didn't mean it, or uh, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. It was something I will never be able to explain in my life, how they continue to enable this president. And uh, I mean, I understand it's their political self, self preservation. I understand it's their bigotry for some of them, but it's still not really very easy to understand. It isn't, I think, to almost anyone who's paying attention to the facts and the evidence. Uh, we all wonder about that. And it does seem right now like it's going to be hard to get 17 Republican senators to vote for conv conviction. But there is new evidence coming out. I mean, even this morning, um, I just read about a meeting the day before on January 5th on the evening at the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., with some of the lead organizers of the riot that um, became domestic terrorism and with members of the uh, Trump family and Trump campaign. So we don't know what was discussed at that. We don't know exactly who was there, but it is additional evidence. Is there any evidence that could come out at the trial so far that you know about that could persuade some of the Republican senators to do the right thing for America, to protect all of its citizens from future attacks like this, and from the possibility that Donald Trump would run for office again? I, I don't know. I mean, I, you would think that about 10 things would have been enough, um, but it hasn't been so far. But here, here's why I take a, a, a Joe and Victor, why I take a more optimistic tone. We had a meeting the other day with some some historians of the Senate, I mean, just some some well-known historians and um, of American politics. And a couple of them pointed out that the reason for this trial, even if we don't convict and prohibit him from ever running for office again, the reason for the trial and the public, the, the public gathering of the evidence, the, the evidence and the information is to create a, a historical record to make this less likely to happen again. The, the analogy is when Allied troops came upon the, 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 um, the death camps in, in Germany and Poland and reported those to the world, how important that General Eisenhower said it was that the world see this so that nobody can, nobody legitimate can ever deny it. And that's, this is, this is not the constant, it's not the level of the death camps. Nothing is that evil probably, but it certainly is very important to our history and especially important to our future that we understand and we show the world, this is what happened. Um, this is the historical documentation. These are the videos. These are what was presented in the trial. That makes it much less likely that a that a, an, another Trump character kind of person, awful person, can can amass this power and so deal attack and delegitimize our, our American democratic institutions. That seems like a very valid uh, perspective and reason for proceeding. Mm -hmm. um, as a trial lawyer, I also think that there is a possibility that when presented 
in a cogent, persuasive way, the facts will sway not just the senators, but also their constituents who will persuade them that they should do the right thing, that their own uh, self-interest cannot outweigh protecting the yeah, American I, public. I, I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer at all, let alone a, a trial lawyer, but I, like you are, but I, I assume Victor's not yet. But I hope that's right. I don't know that, I mean, so many of these Republican senators represent small conservative rural states that, that vote 60% for Trump. And I don't know that even public pressure, um, intense public pressure, um, can can dissuade them from looking out for their own very narrow political, sometimes bigoted, but narrow political interests. So far, it hasn't even all kinds of evidence. And I mean, a court of law, this would be a, nothing's a slam dunk, I guess, but close. But this one, this is different because of the politics of it. I think it's going to be difficult politically for a lot of these senators to go and cast that no vote. But um, I, I, I have not seen evidence yet. I think the jury's still out, pardon the, the, the partial pun there, on what McConnell's gonna do. Um, but I, and I, if McConnell were to vote for conviction, and I was gonna say removal conviction and prohibition to run, perhaps enough Republicans would follow because they, typically they've done what McConnell's done and McConnell's done what Trump's, what, they've done what McConnell won and McConnell's done what Trump wanted, that dynamic doesn't quite work now, perhaps. It's, it'll be interesting because he did say right after the uh, mob was in the Capitol that this was a step too far, that the president had clearly incited it. Um, and that might indicate that he will take that path of truth and that maybe other Republicans will follow him. I know during Watergate, public reaction is what changed how Richard Nixon reacted. He was stonewalling, giving over the tapes. He fired the special prosecutor. And then within three days, the public response forced him to reverse himself. So maybe- you were, part of, you were part of that, I understand. I don't mean part of the Nixon crowd, but- Right. <laughs> no, and then Barry Goldwater went to the White House and said, Mr. President, you don't want this to go to a Senate vote. You've got to retire, right? Exactly. Exactly. That, 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 I mean, it's such a look. Look who was in the Republican Party then: Ed Brooke of Massachusetts, yes. Ace Javits, people who were actually, um, I think, Jenny Javits may have been gone by then. But but people, Republicans that actually believed in civil rights, there are almost none of them today. Um, Republicans who were willing to walk across the aisle, there are very few of those. So it's a different era, but perhaps, and we can be helpful. So when we're talking about your colleagues, let's talk about some of the. Um, senators who voted to sustain the objection to the electoral vote, despite the facts that there was no fraud, um, and did so even after the Capitol had been invaded. Do you think that any of them, who also, by the way, uh, continue to say false things about the election, do you think that they should be jurors in this case, or should they be barred from jury duty? Should they even be perhaps expelled from the Senate? Well, I think the two ringleaders should be expelled from the Senate. Uh, and I've called for that publicly. And then Senator Whitehouse, Verona, and a number of us um, ethics complain against the two of them. Uh, they're not going to resign. They, they, they see this as their path to the White House. This is so much of this is driven by their own egos, number one, and number two, their presidential ambitions. 
uh, they should so they should be expelled. The other the other five or six, I think six others, should be ashamed of themselves to, for sure. And history, I think, won't look kindly on them. Um, but they, I was pretty aghast that when we went back to the floor after four and a half hours of being quarantined, isolated, whatever, wherever we were safely in the heart building, I was pretty incredulous that they, that eight of them still voted that way. A couple of them changed that they were going yeah. to and didn't. But um, I, I, I don't know what goes on in their minds when they think anything but rejecting out of hand um, that that behavior, um, putting distance between them, pushing it away, is um, it just boggles our minds. Well, you've made a very persuasive case for proceeding with the trial and, of course, for convicting. Um, I think Victor has some questions we should move on to. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I just want to move on to another topic of concern to many Americans, which is this COVID-19 relief package. Um, The Biden administration is trying to get this bill passed at full speed uh, because they understand, I think, the importance of government helping the lives of the American people. Uh, Just for our audience, can you explain what's in the bill and whether or not you support that bill? Yeah, I I want to put it in historical context. Go back almost a year early in the pandemic. Congress came together and uh, passed a huge bill faster than we usually are able to put something together and bigger than we ever have. It's called the CARES Act. And the CARES Act had significant dollars for, for unemployment benefits, for small business, for, um, uh, for, for some, some to help people stay in their apartments and, and homes, mostly, mostly uh, a, a moratorium on evictions. It also had you know, some assistance for local governments. It, so it, it, the, what, but what it, what it did and why this is so important, why I bring it up, Victor, is because we did that, a study showed 13 million people stayed in this country, stayed out of poverty. There actually was no significant increase in poverty at all during the four months after we passed that bill in the middle of a pandemic with tens of millions of people losing their jobs. I mean, that speaks to the role of government, how important the role of government is when done right. So then by August, that, that a lot of those benefits started to fall off. The unemployment benefit expired. The money for local governments, for small businesses began, all those things began to run out. And we saw thousands of people every day falling into poverty in our country. Um, only finally in December could we convince Senator McConnell, the House had passed something bold and important. Could we convince Senator McConnell to move in December? And then he passed a package, which was good, but not nearly deep, deep enough, broad enough. So, um, we're back at it. This is our chance this year. We've got to do it right. It's got to last for pretty much the whole year until the coronavirus is in the rearview mirror and the economy's back on its feet. And that means uh, money for unemployment benefits, for small businesses, for schools. Uh, it seems to me there's almost nothing more important than opening up our schools for yeah. students in person learning. Because, you know, I mean, private school kids, in many cases in affluent areas, are going to school every day. Uh, it's my, my, my grandchildren go to school in Columbus, city of Columbus mm-hmm. in Ohio, and, and their school hasn't been open the whole year. They have parents who are educated who don't really know how to teach, but can keep them up. They're small children, they're early grades, school age. Mm-hmm. But so many, so many students have lost this year of learning. We've got to get them back in the classroom, let alone what that does to their parents' ability to work. So, um, all of the things that so so the bill the bill will do the, the kinds of things we need and of course lots of money to set up the the real structure to get the vaccines in people's arms 
Yeah. And uh, we are we are in the process of doing that. So um, th this this bill is it just must be passed. Um, it will be passed. I think it will be a close vote mm -hmm. because Republicans are already saying we're spending too much money. But but I, one guy one guy said to me, uh, he's the chair of the economics department at Howard University, and he said, you know, during World War II, we didn't say I don't know if we have enough money to to um, for for D. I'm not sure we can do this. We didn't. We didn't talk that this. This is the equivalent of a domestic war. Um, it's done more damage to our country and to our economy since anything since the depression, except World War II, of course. And so, um, it's just clear we have to do this. If we don't do it right, if we don't stop the, if we don't get the vaccine out and stop this virus, um, the economy is never going to recover the way that we want it to. So we've got to do. We've got to do both at once with emphasis on the vaccine. Right. And do you have an estimate for when it might get passed? Um, I think in the next six weeks or so, okay. we want to move as quickly as we can. Right. I, it really depends, Victor. Is is there going to be is there going to be any Republican support that would make it yeah. that could make it move significantly faster? Mm -hmm. um, but so far, there hasn't been. And Senator McConnell was he he used the term from about May of 2020 to about October. He said, "I feel no sense of urgency." Well, he mm -hmm. didn't because he went home every night to a safe place and. And he and his wife are multimillionaires, and he he didn't steal urgency, perhaps, but clearly the American public did. Right, right. I think that urgency is desperately needed right now, especially. And you know, I think that's a great transition into our next topic, which is this the long road ahead to repairing our government after four years of constant norm breaking by the Trump administration. What role do you think my generation can have in helping that effort of fixing our government for the better um, after those four years? And any advice for um, our generation as we uh, try to make those changes? Yeah, um, well, I always would argue for public service the way that that Jill has done it um, in her life, the way that people who um, work for a homeless shelter do, for people that that like my daughter, one of my daughters is a, is a, represents immigrants as a legal services lawyer. Mm. Um, some of the most the people who face the biggest obstacles in our country, um, mostly low, very low income immigrants. Um, yeah. There are there are so many ways to do public service, and and and, and I guess I'd say to your generation, learn. My generation hasn't done it very well, frankly. Learn learn what the institutions of democracy are that are so key. To keeping us a free people, um, the you know the the sanctity of elections, the importance of representative government, the court system, um, the 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 non -for, the not for profit sector, and in the role it plays. That's not exactly mm -hmm. part of the democratic institutions, but sort of the, the next level out. Um, all of those kinds of things, and and ask questions and listen. I mean, I I um, I, I good. I know good elected officials are the ones that listen better. The ones that aren't so good talk too much. We all talk too much, actually. <laughs> um, there's that, but um, and and I, I think it's it's really up to your generation to save this democracy because you know that that close uh, three weeks ago to losing something big. I mean, they were clearly planning um, to kill elected officials and staff and anybody else in the way, kidnap, assassinate, whatever. Um, it would have been and and. You know, they, there's a there's a swath of people in this country that don't that fundamentally don't don't believe in the fundamentals of democracy. They clearly don't. Um, they wouldn't have acted this way. Not just the not just the insurgent, not just the rioters and the insurrectionists, but but those those enablers in the Congress and in the media and elsewhere. 
Thank you so much for that. I have one quick question. I know you have a busy schedule, but maybe just a quick answer. You're the only Democrat elected statewide in Ohio. So now that um, your fellow Senator Portman has said he won't run for reelection in two years, is there any chance that you think there might be uh, another Democratic senator elected? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's not just, I think there's a very good chance. It, it, um, I think I went Ohio because I, I focus on the dignity of work, on, on, on making sure that people, that, that I mean, I, I look at everything. I'm going to be chairman starting, I think, next week of the, of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. And that I, I see that whole committee through the eyes of workers, through the eyes of the dignity of work. This committee has always been called the Senate Banking Committee because it's too often work for Wall Street. It's The real name is Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. You're going to hear me calling it the housing banking or the banking housing committee because it's all about it's all about serving people and i i think in, in a state like ohio which is more republican than it used to be and in leans that way uh democrats like me win be, if we listen to people and if we fight for workers and uh and respecting the dignity of work whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge or work for tips or raise children or care for aging parents all of, all of that is so important and people vote for me i think because of that Listening to voters sounds like good advice for all senators. Yeah. Is there anyone in particular you have in mind who might run for this that we should be paying attention uh, there to? Are, there are three or four. I hear Mayor Coleman of Columbus, Congressman Ryan. Um, I hear Amy Acton, former health department director, a Democrat under a Republican administration at the beginning of COVID. Um, I've heard uh, Joyce Beatty may be interested, Congresswoman from Columbus. I, I haven't talked to Marcy County. I, it's, it's unclear, but I think we're oh. going to not necessarily a spirited primary. I know on the Republican side, you know, the people like Jim Jordan, who has been the president's maybe worst or best, depending on how you strike it, um, enabler. I, I think he's probably interested. So it's going to it's going to get a lot of national attention and. Um, I think in the end, voters make the contrast who's on their side. And any one of those people I mentioned, they, 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 are, they will be on the side of, of the, the large swath of the public because mm -hmm. they all, I know, follow the whole idea of dignity of work and how important it is. Yeah. Well, this has been a Thank wonderful discussion. Thank you for discussion. sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. This has been a wonderful discussion. I'm glad you two guys met back <laughs> last summer and decided to do this. So cool. Us too. We hope you'll be back with us again. Yes. All right, I'll do it. I'll come at Christmas when you have the red on. Then I'll, <laughs> okay, then I'll wear a red top. Particularly with the color you're wearing. And Victor, yours is a pretty boring background. I, yeah. You look so studious. For a guy that's not even gone off to college yet, that's a lot of books to have behind you. <laughs> yeah, this, summer has, this, this pandemic has been a good time for reading, for sure. I know, for sure. So who's Definitely. got the dog? Whose dog's barking? Me, I'm the guilty one. Yeah, my dog barks in the middle of interviews, but I'm in my Washington office, so my dog's not here. So I had to mute myself during our interview because he was going crazy. But all right, people actually, people I found people like it when the dog barks. It means this is yeah. a real person. Thanks, hey, folks. Come here and meet a senator. Come here. Yeah, let me see the dog. Come here, honey. Come and meet a senator. Look at this. <laughs> is that a husband, a kid, or a dog? You call honey. <laughs> it's my my honey. Come up here. Come up here. Say hello. You have to get into the camera. The you can't see him yet. Jill, you can lower the camera. Oh, I guess I could. Ooh, there we go. Oh, it's a big Hi, dog. Honey. You said come up in your lap. I figured. Yeah. Oh, you'd be surprised. He is definitely a lap he had a, dog. He had a big dog voice bark. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's 80 pounds of muscle. 
Whoa. Oh. He is big. All right. Thanks, folks. All right. Thank, thank you, Senator Brown. Have a good, great day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.